Well, I've often quoted an admired preacher of days gone by who once suggested that the church has no greater need than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. And as I've meditated on the life and legacy of Billy Graham after his passing this past Wednesday, coupled with the contemplative season that we're in called Lent, the weeks leading up to Christ's passion and the ultimate celebration of his resurrection, that statement managed to catch my attention yet once again. And I've realized that it has pointed its personal finger right directly at me. And the words of A.W. Tozer offers, they offer really no relief. He said, quote, our problems of spiritual coldness and apathy would quickly disappear if Christian believers generally would confess their great need for rediscovering the loveliness of Jesus Christ, their Savior. The question is begged, do I love Jesus with the intensity that would move me to risk my greatest possession? Do I love him enough to sacrifice everything or anything? Is my expression of love for him extravagant enough to be criticized or misunderstood? Because when all is said and done, will, will the love that I have for Jesus be memorable? I guess you could say, in all honesty and without argument, that that was Billy Graham's legacy. His love for Jesus is pretty memorable. Would yours be? Or mine? Again, the words of Tozer arrest me. He said, oh, that we would have a naked intent to know Jesus Christ. It means putting the world and things and people beneath our feet, opening our hearts to only one lover, the Son of God himself. Now, I wonder how many of you are familiar with the story, The Gift of the Magi. Are you familiar with that story? Written by O. Henry. It is the story of a young couple, James Dillingham Young and his wife, Della. It's also the story of extravagant acts of love. The tale describes how each of them longed to buy for each other the perfect Christmas gift, reflecting the intense love that they shared with each other. And the problem, however, was their unfortunate financial condition. They couldn't afford anything. So what would they do? And according to the narrative, there were two possessions of, of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took pride. One was Jim's gold pocket watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. And the other was Della's long, beautiful hair. Della had saved for weeks for Jim's present, but she only had a dollar eighty-seven. Hardly enough for a fine present. And then she came up with this incredible idea that she'd go to the hair goods shop and see if they would buy her hair. And so they did. They give her twenty dollars for it. So with twenty-one eighty-seven in her possession, she searched for just the right gift. And when she saw the platinum fob chain for the pocket watch, she bought it. And it cost all of $21, so that left her with 87 cents. She hurried home with the change, excited to give her gift to her husband. As she heard Jim's footsteps approaching the apartment, Della prayed silently, please, God, let him think I'm still pretty. 
Jim stopped inside the door and stared, his eyes fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she couldn't read, and it terrified her. Was it anger, surprise, disapproval, horror, or any that she had expected? He simply stared at her fixedly. Della quickly approached him, explaining how her hair would grow fast and how she hoped he wouldn't mind, but she simply couldn't live through Christmas without giving him present, so she had cut her hair off and sold it. Jim said, you cut your hair? I hadn't noticed. (laughs) Della said, you needn't look for it. It's sold. It's gone. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Isn't that nice? Jim finally woke from his trance and embraced Della. He drew the package from his overcoat and gave it to Della. Nothing, especially not a haircut, would make him love her any less. And as she opened the package, an ecstatic scream of joy was changed into a scream of tears, for there lay these beautiful combs for her hair. Pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, the combs that she had admired for a long, long time. And they were just the right shade to wear in her vanished hair. Expensive combs. She never dreamed she would own them. Now they were hers, but the hair that should have adorned them was not. She hugged them with dim eyes, looked at Jim, saying, my hair grows so fast. And then leaping up, she realized she had not given Jim his gift. But she held it out and eagerly gave it to him. Isn't it beautiful, Jim? Hunted all over town to find it. Give me a watch. I want to see how it looks on it. But instead, Jimble tumbled down onto the couch, put his hands behind his head, smiled, and he said, Dell, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just now. I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs for your hair. Now, I remember years ago when I first discussed that story with one of my young sons, and I asked him what he thought. This is what he answered, kiddingly. What a waste. <laughs> now there's someone that hasn't had a love of his life yet, right? Often that's the same reaction many people who have never experienced deep, unconditional love have. The fact is extravagant acts of sacrificial love are never a waste. Amen. At least not as far as Jesus is concerned. And in today's text, we find an extravagant act of love on the part of one brave soul that became a memorable work of faith. And that can happen as well to us. That one extravagant act of love can become a memorable work of faith. Turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 6. I want to read these verses to you. As we navigate these next few weeks leading up to Easter, I thought it would be interesting to highlight a few of the instrumental people who played a significant and unforgettable role in the last week of Jesus' life. Snapshots, if you will, of the people of Passion Week. And so from intimate devotion to intense denial, from the laudable to the despicable, we find an entire range of actions and emotions that you and I can relate to in one way or another through all these characters we're going to look at, each of these touching some aspect of our love for Jesus. 
So over the next five Sundays, you may find yourself either consoled or convicted, or both. But in either case, we will be called to consider whether we love Jesus the way we say we do. So my desire is that God would use these texts that we're going to study as a source of preparation so that each of you, myself as well, would come to worship the Lord Jesus with hearts as full of love and commitment as Mary did in this text. Follow along with me as I read this text, beginning in verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. How extravagant is your love for Christ this morning? Would you put it on a plane with Mary's? Had you been at this event, how would you have reacted to what transpired in this narrative? Where would you place yourself in the story? In Mary's shoes or the disciples' shoes? Or might you be in Judas's shoes, which we haven't seen his reaction yet? We all want to be in Mary's shoes this morning, don't we? Her unmeasured love for Christ not only acted unselfishly and unreservedly, but it was accepted unashamedly by Christ himself. Her extravagant act of love became a memorable work of faith. Do you have an extravagant love for Christ? What are some of the elements of this woman's love? These are telltale signs that an extravagant love for Christ will bring on. And the first one is this. Extravagant love for Christ is risky love. It's risky. Look at verses 6 and 7. So Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, and this woman comes up to him with an alabaster vial of costly perfume and poured it on his head as he reclines at the table. A woman came to him, it says. Simple phrase, very significant phrase, however, for a woman to approach a rabbi and touch him just touch him, mind you, was not customary. Much less wipe his feet with her hair. For her to approach Jesus this intimately and affectionately as he reclined at the table with the other guests was an incredible, incredible risk on her part. Now, just imagine for a moment, you, you know, we read these stories, we've got the paintings in our minds, we think that this just unfolded, right? Imagine if some woman walked in the door, came up here this morning, took off my shoes, and poured out perfume on my, my feet, or my head, and started to wipe them with her hair. 
what would you guys do? I know what my wife would do. <laughs> Scott, you'd have to hold her back <laughs> before she committed a crime. <laughs> now, it kind of gives you a little picture of what's going on here. And it was, uh, if, if it's bad now, imagine what it would have been like then. And she risked all of that to approach Jesus. She risked reproach. She risked ridicule. She risked humiliation. She risked being misinterpreted. But more than that, she risked the possibility of rejection. I mean, what if Jesus had shrunk away from her? Turned away. Stepped back. What if Jesus had shrunk away from her approach and he he had turned her away? He pushed her away and said, not appropriate. You better think that one through. See, it was risky love, chance-taking love, but it was genuine. It was real. It was bold. Whether or not it was accepted, she was going to show Christ and everyone else around that table that her love would not be imprisoned by her fear. Extravagant love for Jesus is risky love. We often want to hide it behind safe walls, but that's a fallacy. An act of love is never risk-free. C.S. Lewis said it best in his book, The Four Loves. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And our love for Jesus is like that. We keep it locked up in a casket, it's going to change. Let me ask you, have you ever risked anything in showing Christ how much you love him? Have you risked anything in showing the world how much you love Christ? Friends, there's more to the Christian life than playing it safe. Extravagant acts of love for Christ is risky, but it's also something else. second thing that we see here in this text is that it's costly. It's costly love. She poured it on his head as he reclined on the table. And the disciples, well, let's just stop there at the second part of verse 7. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and John chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, give us more details about this very same event. And what I want to do right now is I'm going to read, I'm not going to read those texts to you, Uh, separately, I've harmonized them. So they fit the chronology of how it probably happened. So let me read it to you. The harmony of Mark and John's account. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. 
For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, the reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from the pure nard and anointed nard and anointed the feet of Jesus as well and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now look at the contrast situation here. Talk about risky love and costly love. Here, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and seize him. And this woman came and exposed her love for him in front of all of that. John identifies this woman as Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She had been close to the Lord for a very long time. She had been, she, they had spent much time together. She had sat at his feet, mesmerized by his words, while Martha ran around, made all kinds of preparation at another mealtime. She had called for him when her brother was sick and actually died. She had questioned him when Lazarus died, and then she had stood in awe of him as he called her brother out of death and restored life to him. How could she hold back now? After all he had done for her, there had to be something that she could do for him. Something unique, something expressive, something silent but meaningful, something sacrificial. Here's the principle. Mark it down. Genuine, heartfelt love always finds generous outward expression. And so she took the most precious, valuable possession that she had and she gave it to Christ. Perfume. But it wasn't just any perfume. According to all three accounts, it was very costly perfume. Mark and John tell us that it was 12 ounces of pure nard, the most expensive oil of antiquity, spike nard. It was imported probably from India and in those days was so highly prized that it was given as gifts to kings. Mary made no attempt to hide her belief that Jesus was the Messiah and as an expression of her deep faith was now offering it a gift worthy of a king. How expensive was this perfume? Well, Mark indicates that it could have been sold for over 300 denarii. The equivalent of, get it, one year's wages for a hired laborer or a soldier. In today's terms, that would amount to Somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five thousand dollars. Imagine what you could do with an entire year's wages. Friends, just for giggles, try this. Go home today. It's just about the right time of year for this, too. You probably already know these figures in your head. Go home, pull out last year's tax return. Find the line that gives you gross wages. And then let it register for about 60 seconds or so, maybe even 120. And then ask yourself, 
Would I be willing to pour out that much money simply out of my love for Jesus? Here's the thing. Mary didn't give it as a gift to his ministry. He didn't, she didn't offer it to him to use as he saw fit. She didn't view this as a tax-deductible contribution. According to Mark, she simply took the flask and she broke it, which means she crushed it. And she poured out its contents all over his head. And John adds that she then anointed his feet and wiped them with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance. And, you know, she probably took something a little bit smaller than this and and broke it and then took it and she poured it. She poured it all over him. And hopefully this will get through the auditorium and you'll be able to smell it. Because even though this isn't spikenard, it says that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of it. It was a supreme act of humble worship. And she could have, I believe, if she would have wanted to pour herself out for him. I believe that was her intended sentiment. It wasn't an impulsive act. It had to have been planned. Why else would she have had the flask with her at the home of a healed leper? Mary knew exactly what she was doing. She knew the risks involved. She understood the cost. She knew how much this was going to affect her. Kind of like the Abraham's offering of Isaac. High price. Poured out for the love of God. Or Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Or Hannah's dedication of Samuel. Or Paul's commitment to his call. If you read Acts chapter 20 in verse 24, Paul made it very clear how much he was willing to give. Acts 20 verse 24 says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And he's talking to the elders, the Ephesian elders, as he's heading for Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to die. See, or it may be God the Father's, like God the Father's gift to us and Jesus' selfless act of grace on the cross when he poured himself out to death. See, her love was not restricted by convention and it wasn't restrained by what others thought. To Mary, it was all or nothing. Her attitude reflects an important principle of giving to the Lord. It echoes the sentiments of King David as he bought the threshing floor of Araunas, the Jebusites, to erect an altar to God. And he said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. That's 2 Samuel 24, 24. Friends, extravagant love is costly love. And here's the question. 
What has our love for Christ cost us lately? What's your love for Christ cost you lately? It's very convicting to me when I write these words. See, Mary had seen Jesus give. She saw the way he never held back his love from people. And in just a matter of days after this gesture of love, he would literally give his life. And somehow I think she knew that. Somehow she understood that. And so she did the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the unconventional. She did something extravagant. And according to an insightful writer, it was as if her gesture said to him, inhale deeply. Wherever you go, breathe this aroma and remember one who cares for you. And he most likely did. Because this perfume was so strong, it was strong enough to remain on his person for days. And that to me is a beautiful thought. Think about it. Even as he was paraded through the court and tied to the whipping post, he probably caught traces of the fragrance of Mary's faith in his hair as it dangled down in the blood stream from the crown of thorns that was on his head. I really wish Mel Gibson would have put a flashback to this event in The Passion of the Christ because it's very important in the Gospels. But what was the reaction of those who were present at Simon's house? Look at verses 8 and 9. The disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for the high price and the money given to the poor. Mockery, chastisement, complaint. It was ironic, too, for they had all become the recipients of Jesus' grace, haven't they? Hadn't they? Yet they cauterized her generosity. They tried to shut her down. And that's what happens when somebody exhibits a bold love toward Christ. One that is viewed as irrational. Extravagant love is risky. It's costly. And thirdly, it's criticized. It's criticized love. Here's another principle for you to write down. Selfless acts of love will always be confronted by self-centered critics. Selfless acts of love will always be confronted by self-centered critics. One of the easiest things for people to do is, you know, one of the easiest things for people to find is fault. Some people make their whole life about finding fault with people. When you smell this perfume this morning, if you can smell it, I actually sprayed it all around the sanctuary and out in the cafe on all the seats a little bit. It's not super strong, so... But I don't know if you smelled it when you came in or not. When you smelled it, what was your first thought if you did smell it? Did you complain about it? I could see it, right? Jesus' day, Mary pouring it all out and somebody getting up and saying, oh, 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 you better not do that. I'm allergic to that. No, not not to downplay people that are allergic to perfume because there are people that are. I understand that. But the, the point is, is that when somebody pours something out like this, it's criticized, right? Some people will always try to douse the flames of extravagance. I call those people fire extinguishers. Instead of letting their light shine, they spend their time trying to put out the flames of somebody else's light. 
It's all over the place. And unfortunately, it's in the church too. And they do two destructive and hurtful things, in my opinion. Well, it's not my opinion. It's actually fact. They inhibit someone else's ministry, number one. And number two, they grieve the Lord. Both of those two things. Matthew says the disciples were indignant. What a waste, they proclaimed. And Mark says that they were scolding her in Mark chapter 14, verse 5. The word means they were snorting about it. Can't you just hear them? John says that Judas was the instigator of the attack in John's gospel. And he even explains the reason behind it. Greed and selfishness, if you want to see that, in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, this is how it goes. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what, he, what was put into it. Give to the poor? Nice sentiment. What a joke. The poor didn't matter to Judas. Judas mattered to Judas. All he cared about was himself. His reasoning was calculated to sound good to everybody around, but Jesus could see straight into his heart. And not only did he say it, but he instigated all his buddies, the rest of the disciples, to chime right in as well. How many people used the same exact wording, almost verbatim, as an aggressive attack against some churches and ministries who spend large amounts of money on innovative ways to present Christ to people in extravagant ways? I mean, some, you ought to revisit the Old Testament. Exodus chapters 25 and 31 and note the extravagance of the tabernacle, all its furnishings, as well as the articles of clothing used by the priests and the anointing oil they were to have. Reread the account of the temple Solomon built for the Lord. Then time warped to Revelation 21 and read about the extravagant beauty of the new Jerusalem that God is preparing for our future. Any critics? My friends, extravagance when motivated by pure love and sincere reverence for God is not, not wasteful. Yet it should never be practiced to the neglect of others or as a means of making yourself look good. The fact is, is that we truly can't love God extravagantly or otherwise unless we are also willing to show love for others. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21 says, and this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. Don't neglect the poor. But you could see that in this particular setting, that was not the issue. So before we criticize the extravagant actions of other Christians, we'd better first examine our own actions. A mudslinger, you know, rarely has clean hands. 300 denarii could have helped a lot of hungry, hurting people. No question about it. In fact, if we go by Philip's assessment in John chapter 6, verse 7, where they were feeding 5,000, where Jesus fed the 5,000, the money would have fed well over 5,000 people. Well over 5,000 people. But that fact made Mary's gift to Jesus 
that much more precious, didn't it? I mean, she gave it because it was the most costly thing that she had. And as William Barclay rightly observes, he said, love never calculates. Love never thinks about how little it can decently give. Love's one's des- one desire is to give the uttermost to the one that they love. And when it is given all it has to give, it still thinks to give too little. And then he says, we have not even begun to be Christian if we think of giving to Christ and to his church in terms of as little as we respectably can. Extravagant love is criticized love. But there's only one way to avoid that criticism. And that is to say nothing, to do nothing, and to be nothing for Christ. None of that appealed to Mary. She had to say something. She was compelled to do something. And in so doing, she became something. She predictably became the object of everybody's criticism. Everybody, that is, except the one that she loved. He didn't criticize her, did he? The only one who mattered at that point. Jesus immediately came to her defense. And I love the way that John captures it in his gospel. In John chapter 12 and verse 7. Very simple words. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. J.B. Phillips translates, she has done a beautiful thing for me. It was an excellent thing. The Greek word means it was choice. Select, well-timed. Don't ignore how Jesus exonerates Mary's love here. He points to the fact that Mary seized an opportunity that would have otherwise been missed. Verse 11, back in Matthew 26. For you always have the poor with you. You can always do for the poor but you don't always have me. There is a time for risky, costly, extravagant acts of love. Mary seems to have a knack for seizing those opportunities. In Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, she was criticized by her sister Martha for sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha ran around the kitchen, you know, tending to the details, yet Jesus again defended Mary's actions and her devotion. Listen, my friends, there are times when you have to seize the moment of life. Wise parents and teachers learn to see and take advantage of teachable moments with their children, right? You've got to seize it while it's there. Wise people learn how to discern the defining moments of life, and they pour themselves into them. Sometimes I forget that. And you do too. And there are times for service. There are times for studying your Bible, giving to the poor, helping the needy, seeking the lost, and ministering to the saints. But there is a time for quiet, extravagant acts of love and devotion to be poured out on the one that you love. Times to appreciate your kids outlandishly, making a big deal about something very trivial. Times when you ought to bring something special home for your wife or your husband, other than on his or her birthday or anniversary or Christmas, providing you remember those things. 
We encounter countless opportunities on a daily basis that God makes available to us more than we'd care to admit. And you know what we do with them? We talk ourselves out of seizing them. Talk ourselves right out of it. We dismiss them as impractical or silly or unconventional. And we convince ourselves that we're being rational, sensible, and safe. How's that working for you? You want to know what I think? I think we're either scared or we're too much in love with ourselves and not enough with others or with Jesus. In the epic words of Mark Twain, he said, Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. (laughs) We're all in denial when we fail to take the opportunities to show love like Mary showed love. In Jesus' name, we're up to our eyeballs in denial. The biggest problem is that once these moments are missed, they're gone forever. They're gone. That's the real waste. I think the majority of us need to let it go a little bit. A little more. Know a lot more irrational behavior in expressing bold love toward our spouse, our children, our friends, and especially toward our Lord. That's exactly what we need. Love without limits. Lloyd John Ogilvie wrote of Mary's act. He said, her unimpaired impulses moved her to give a great gift. It was not smothered with caution or prejudice. She was lifted out of arithmetic calculation to abandoned compassion. She did not allow reserve to keep her from the moment which would never come again. There is a time when people should be careful, but there is also a time when they ought not to be cautious. The Christian is not a tight-fisted, clenched-teeth, grim-faced person, or shouldn't be anyway. Rather, he is one who loves and laughs and gives himself to Christ lavishly. In Mary, we are challenged by extravagant love. A certain excessiveness is an important ingredient of greatness. Unquote. How often do you and I fail to act on a heartfelt impulse or the prompting of the Holy Spirit, I should say? How many times have I missed or you missed or one-time opportunity because we think, well, maybe we'll do it someday? And for too many of us, the tragedy of our lives will be to look back and see the opportunities we had to show love or to do some beautiful thing in Jesus' name, but we allowed them to slip into someday. Remember this. The price, here's another principle for you. The price of practicality is sometimes higher than the cost of extravagance. The price of practicality is sometimes higher than the cost of extravagance. Someday, we say, someday, but someday never comes. Someday I'll take my wife on that vacation. Someday when I'm not so busy, I'll spend more time with my kids. Someday we'll get together. Someday I'll write that book, plant that garden, build that house, give my life to Christ. Someday. You know what someday is? Someday is nothing but a missed opportunity. In an article that appeared in the Los Angeles Times some years ago, a lady named Ann Wells turned the tragedy of, missed, of a missed moments, of missed moments into an uncomfortable reality for most of us. 
Let me read this to you. She writes, my brother-in-law opened the bottom drawer of my sister's bureau, lifted out a tissue-wrapped package. This, he said, is not a slip. This is lingerie. He discarded the tissue and handed me the slip. It was exquisite silk, handmade and trimmed with a cobweb of lace. The price tag with an astronomical figure on it was still attached. Jan bought this the first time we moved to New York at least eight or nine years ago and she never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. Well, I guess this is the occasion. He took the slip from me and put it on the bed with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. His hands lingered on the soft material for a moment and then he slammed the drawer shut and turned to me. Don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you're alive is a special occasion. I remembered those words through the funeral and the days that followed when I helped him and my niece attend to all the sad chores that follow an unexpected death. I thought about them on the plane returning to California from the Midwestern town where my sister's family lives. I thought about all the things that she hadn't seen or heard or done. I thought about the things that she had done without realizing that they were even special. I'm still thinking about his words and they've changed my life. I'm not saving anything. We use our good china and crystal for every special event such as losing a pound, getting the sink unstopped, the first blossom of the, of the spring. Someday and one of these days are losing their grip on my vocabulary. If it's worth seeing or hearing or doing, I want to see and hear and do it now. He closes. You see... Friends, Mary's vocabulary didn't contain the word someday. At least not when it came to Jesus. She understood that extravagance and waste are not synonymous terms and moreover are irrelevant when it comes to devotion to Christ. So she did what the disciples failed to do. She seized the opportunity. She took the risk. She counted the cost. She faced the critics. She opened her heart. She poured out her soul. It was an incredible gesture of faith. And believe it or not, it was tremendously significant in the grand scheme of Jesus' life. The message translates Jesus' frank words in verse 10 this way. Why are you giving this woman a hard time? She has done something wonderfully significant for me. She had anointed his body for burial. In fact, it was the only anointing the Lord received in relation to his death. The only one. When he was buried, there was no time, so Joseph and Nicodemus simply wrapped the spices in the linens. Mark says that when the women returned to Jesus' grave to anoint his body after his death, the resurrection had already taken place. An extravagant act of love became a memorable work of faith. You want to know something about an extravagant gesture of love? The reward is always greater than the cost. The reward is always greater than the cost. It was for Abraham, it was for Hannah, it was for Ruth, it was for Paul, and it was for Jesus, wasn't it? 
Mary's extravagant act of love was a snapshot of Christ's unparalleled love for us as he hung on the cross and paid the extreme price for our eternal salvation. It cost him dearly, and it's still criticized to this day. Mary's love was risky, it was costly, it was criticized, but it was one more thing, it was worth remembering. Mary's example will never be forgotten, and that's the last thing here in verse 13. Extravagant love is memorable love. Verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus didn't say that about anybody else, did he? Opportunity, someone wrote, is like a horse that gallops up and then pauses for a moment. And if you don't get on, before long you hear the clatter of hoofbeats dying away in the distance. Don't miss the wisdom of those words. Don't miss the beauty of Mary's extravagant act of love here. But beyond that, please don't miss the personal reality of Christ's extravagant love for you and his open offer of grace in this moment for you. Because for some of you, maybe in this room, maybe in that room, maybe somebody's going to be driving in the car and hearing this message on a radio someday. This is your Mary moment. It's really your Jesus moment. Seize it. Not someday, this day. Don't fall into the tragedy of the verses that follow. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Look at the contrasts between that text and the one we just looked at. Mary sees the one-time opportunity to show love. Judas searched for an opportunity to betray love. Mary gave all that she could. Judas was interested in all that he could get. How will your love for Christ be remembered in history? When your life is remembered, will people say that you loved Christ with all you had or that you loved him only for what you could get? 